Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Twitter employees allegedly knew that former President Trump didn't violate their guidelines, but still banned him. That and more in the fifth part of the so-called Twitter files released today. A government shutdown looms yet again as lawmakers rush to solidify a deal on funding levels for 2023. Some say negotiations are hopeful. Others, warning of a dangerous last-minute sprint. U.S. officials meet with Paul Whelan's family to discuss how to secure his release from Russian prison. The officials say they're planning to talk with Russian counterparts about the ex-Marine later this week. Nancy Pelosi's youngest daughter gives an update on her father's recovery. And the NBC reporter who covered the attack is back on air after a five-week absence. And a retired Navy SEAL, who previously identified as transgender, is back in the spotlight. He says now he's speaking up for the children. The latest installment of the so-called Twitter files came out just a few hours ago. It shows how former President Trump was banned from the platform. Journalist Barry Weiss released the Twitter files part five on Monday afternoon. It includes images of conversations between Twitter employees before then-President Trump was banned from the platform. They discussed tweets Trump made after January 6th. Weiss summarizes, the Twitter staff assigned to evaluate tweets quickly concluded that Trump had not violated Twitter's policies. I think we'd have a hard time saying this is incitement, wrote one staffer but internal and external pressure to ban Trump mounted. One head employee asked if there was a way to interpret the tweets as an incitement to violence, asking for any context or insight we should consider. Later that day, Trump was banned due to the risk of further incitement of violence. Weiss points out how other heads of state did in fact incite violence without getting banned, like the former Malaysian prime minister, who tweeted that Muslims have a right to be angry and to kill millions of French people for the massacres of the past. Or Iran's Ayatollah, who said that Israel is a malignant cancerous tumor in the West Asian region that has to be removed and eradicated. Mark Meckler was the interim CEO of social media company Parler and the president of Convention of States Action. He tells NTD Twitter shows a double standard. These are obvious, direct, intentional incitements to violence. And what you see in Barry Weiss's thread is that even the executives of Twitter were saying they couldn't actually find any incitement and violence to Trump's tweets. And so they knew that they were doing something that was not consistent with their standards. Not all Twitter employees agreed with banning Trump. One message reads, maybe because I am from China, I deeply understand how censorship can destroy the public conversation. Meckler says the U.S. is in fact becoming like China. I think it's really dangerous. I think we're sliding towards totalitarianism at a rapid rate. The files show that a day after Trump was banned, employees expressed eagerness to tackle medical misinformation as soon as possible. Over the weekend, a Twitter user asked Musk whether the Twitter files about the censorship of COVID-19 and vaccine information will be released. Musk replied saying, oh, it is coming big time. White House COVID-19 advisor Anthony Fauci recently testified as part of a lawsuit investigating collusion between the government and big tech to censor people. At the deposition, Fauci said that he never called for censorship. Meckler says even if Fauci did ask for censorship, it might be hard to find proof. A lot of times guys at a high, like, high level like him 
like to have plausible deniability so they're not directly involved. It'll be interesting if we can find a direct track with Fauci's involvement. It is not clear yet when the next batch of the Twitter files will be released. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. The Libyan man who allegedly bombed a flight in 1988 is now in U.S. custody. He appeared in a federal district court in D.C. this afternoon. Abu Aguila Masad was captured in Libya and extradited to the U.S. over the weekend. The Libyan intelligence official is accused of making the bomb that exploded on board Pan Am Flight 103 in December 1988. The plane was over Lockerbie, Scotland, flying from London to New York. The explosion killed around 260 people on board and 11 people on the ground. The victims include 190 Americans. Masad's capture is a milestone in the decades-old investigation into the attack. He allegedly confessed his crimes to Libyan law enforcement back in 2012. The U.S. Justice Department formally charged him in 2020. Masad is the third Libyan intelligence official charged by the U.S. in connection with the attack. But he's the first to appear in an American courtroom. And the Biden administration says it has plans to meet with Russian officials this week to negotiate for Paul Whelan's release. Pressure has been building after the U.S. managed to get WNBA star Brittany Griner released from Russian custody last week. Whelan's been in a Russian jail for almost four years. We are bound and determined to ensure uh, that we uh, work through a successful method of securing Paul Whelan's release at the earliest possible opportunity. U.S. officials met with Paul's sister Elizabeth Monday morning to come up with ideas for his release. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says that the discussions have been substantive and that his family put forward a number of ideas. But that the challenge they've had is that... What Russia was asking for to secure Paul Whelan's release was not something that we had to be able to give. That is a problem we are trying to solve. Asked if the administration would be willing to alter any policies in its negotiations, the advisor replied that if the question referred to U.S. policy on Ukraine, the administration won't change that approach. But he said that they have various ways that they are working through solutions and we will be endeavoring on a daily basis from the president on down to finally develop a formula that works and that's as far as I can go today but I will just reinforce that our commitment to this is absolutely rock solid intense and this is as high a priority as the president has. Former President Trump posted to Truth Social Sunday saying that he would have gotten Whelan out but that the deal that released Griner was crazy and bad and that he wouldn't have traded 100 people in exchange for Victor Boot, who has killed untold numbers of people with his arms deals. Saying Griner's taking wouldn't have happened during his administration, but if it did, he would have gotten her out fast. Government funding is set to run out again in less than five days. Republicans and Democrats are still billions of dollars away from reaching a deal. Now lawmakers must race for a solution to prevent a shutdown as some decry this pattern, calling it a broken budget. 
Well, it's looking like lawmakers are kicking this can down the road for at least another week. Senate leader Chuck Schumer on the floor uh, said that lawmakers should prepare to pass another extension for a short term government funding bill until next week to give appropriators more time to reach a final deal on this. You know, the bill is going to be around one and a half trillion dollars. It's to fund a variety of government agencies as well as social welfare programs. But even if lawmakers do come to a bipartisan consensus on this by the end of this Congress, there's still going to be strong Republican pushback from some senators. Here's why. We're going to get a 3,000 page bill that will have been given to us an hour or two before. I know because this is the way it works every year. No one will read it. No one will know what it in. But what is a guarantee? Is it allowed over a trillion dollars in debt next year? Where in two years we haven't had one discussion on budget mechanics or what we're going to do for the biggest business in the world that so many people look to. It is a broken system. So those Republican senators are urging leadership to not pass a full year funding bill. They want to pass a short term solution that would just carry them into the beginning of next year. This way, Republicans will have more leverage over what goes in this bill once Republicans take the majority um, for the next Congress in the House. But Republican leadership in the Senate says they don't believe this is such a good idea because it would put a lot of pressure on Republicans in the House to negotiate this bill and that will be especially difficult with such a slim margin that they'll be working with in the House. And then you of course have Democrats who don't want Republicans to have more control over this. Clearly what I worry about is Republican efforts uh, to hold hostage next year if we don't get an omnibus bill passed uh, in order to cut Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid and that I will vigorously Oppose. You got a lot of seniors out there. And then you have a third option here, which would be to pass what they call a continuing resolution through next fiscal year. This would keep the government funded at the same at the current levels through September of 2023. Now, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has repeatedly said that this is a last resort effort and uh, Senate Leader Chuck Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell are on the same page here. They really do not want to do this continuing resolution through next year and that's especially the case after the Pentagon sent the lawmakers a letter saying that this could have negative implications for our national security. But as of right now it is looking like lawmakers will continue to negotiate how to move forward here at least for the next two weeks. Reporting in Washington DC, Melina Wisecup, NTD News. On Sunday, Paul Pelosi's daughter gave an update on her father's condition after an alleged hammer attack several weeks ago at his home in San Francisco. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. In an interview with CBS Sunday Morning, Paul and Nancy Pelosi's youngest daughter, Alexandra, said her father's physical scars were healing. But she isn't sure about the emotional scars. I don't know if those ever heal. I don't think it's okay for an 82-year-old man to be attacked in his home in the middle of the night because of whatever his wife does for work. Prosecutors said suspect David DePape entered Pelosi's home on October 28. DePape reportedly spoke to Paul and asked for Nancy Pelosi. He then violently assaulted Paul with a hammer before he was detained by law enforcement. The elder Pelosi was then taken to a nearby hospital for treatment. He had a fractured skull and arm injuries. A November 4 report by NBC News correspondent Miguel Almaguer suggested that Pelosi might not have been in immediate danger when police arrived. NBC News retracted their report the same day, saying it didn't meet standards. The report had already begun to go viral. 
Here's an excerpt recently posted by Fox News. After a knock and announce, the front door was opened by Mr. Pelosi. The 82-year-old did not immediately declare an emergency or try to leave his home, but instead began walking several feet back into the foyer toward the assailant. Almaguer, who was reportedly suspended, has not been seen on the air in the last five weeks. NBC didn't confirm the suspension. On Monday, Almaguer returned to the air. During his absence, Almaguer didn't respond to multiple requests for comment. Meanwhile, DePape remains in jail. He pleaded not guilty to state charges last month and also faces federal charges in connection to the incident. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Arizona's Maricopa County recorder Stephen Richer is one of several defendants named in a lawsuit filed by gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake on Friday. Richer's office responded to the lawsuit today. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. Arizona's Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake filed a lawsuit on Friday. The lawsuit claims Maricopa County recorder Stephen Richer and others violated state and federal laws in the conduct of the 2022 midterm election. In an email to NTD, Richer's spokesperson responded to the lawsuit, saying, quote, the court system is the proper place for campaigns challenging the results to make their case. Maricopa County and the recorder's office respect the election contest process and look forward to sharing facts about the administration of the 2022 general election and our work to ensure every legal voter had an opportunity to cast their ballot. Lake alleges hundreds of thousands of illegal ballots infected the election and that problems with broken printers and tabulators caused lengthy delays at polling sites. Richer recently appeared on the Mike Broomhead show. He said his job is to manage early voting, not election day voting, and discussed his ideas on how to speed up the vote counting process. In the podcast, Richer said the County Board of Supervisors will investigate the problems that occurred on election day, but he's confident that Maricopa County got it right. I'm confident that the results were tabulated accurately and that the voter registration database was in great shape and the best shape that it's been in a while. In response to a question about getting faster election results, Richard said the state has been using the same system since 1992. And yet, after every single election, we say we want results faster. And that, I think, is true across the board. He said the cause of the delays is that early ballots were returned on election day. And the solution is to require that early ballots be returned early. Although his office declined an interview request from NTD to discuss Richer's ideas, a spokesperson said in an email that Richer was primarily focused on getting this policy conversation started at the local level. They will likely expand their outreach once the new legislative session begins. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. A federal appeals court has permanently blocked a mandate from the Biden administration. It would have required doctors to perform gender transition procedures and made insurers pay for them, even if they objected on grounds of medical judgment or conscience. The court based its decision on constitutional protections for religious freedom. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more about the ruling. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit blocked the controversial transgender mandate in a unanimous ruling. It interpreted the Affordable Care Act in a way that required doctors to perform gender transition procedures on any patient, including children, even if the doctor was convinced the procedure could harm the patient. 
The mandate also required the majority of private insurance companies and many employers to cover the cost of gender transition therapy or face penalties. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services' own panel of medical experts acknowledged that gender transition procedures can be harmful and in many cases not medically justified. They determined that Medicare and Medicaid shouldn't be forced to cover such procedures. Research has shown significant risks for children, including loss of bone density, heart disease, and cancer. Religious organizations and states sued to block the mandate. Some felt it would force doctors to violate their Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. A federal district court blocked the mandate from taking effect. The Biden administration then appealed the case. The Eighth Circuit Appeals Court concluded in its ruling that the lower court correctly held that intrusion upon the plaintiff's exercise of religion justified a permanent injunction. The Biden administration has 90 days to appeal the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, or 45 days to ask the Eighth Circuit Court to rehear the case. The White House did not immediately react to the ruling. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Almost 10 years ago, a former Navy SEAL became famous after he opened up about being transgender. Now, he says that decision destroyed his life, and he wants children to know about the consequences before they make those permanent life-changing decisions. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. I'm gonna tell you right now, I take full responsibility. I went on CNN and everything else, and that's why I'm here right now, because I'm trying to correct that. Chris Beck recently did an interview with Robbie Starbuck to announce that he has detransitioned to identify as a man again. Beck is a retired Navy SEAL. In 2013, after his military service, Beck was thrust into the public spotlight after he opened up about being transgender in this interview on CNN. And I gave strength and honor and my full brotherhood to every military person I ever worked with. Around the same time he did the interview, Beck also published a book called Warrior Princess. It details his journey to identify as a woman and how he had to suppress his feelings throughout his 20-year military career. Beck explained that the person who helped him write this book was his own psychiatrist with the Department of Veterans Affairs. She reportedly told him that they could be millionaires. He said she diagnosed him as transgender and prescribed him with permanent life-changing hormones after his first one-hour visit. Yeah, I was very naive. I was in a really bad way. I got taken advantage of. I got propagandized. I got used badly by a lot of people who had knowledge way beyond me. They knew what they were doing. I didn't. But I take responsibility for that, and that's why I'm here right now, because I don't want this to continue, and I don't want these kids to get hurt. Now... Beck says his decision to become transgender destroyed his life. And he wants to make sure children understand the permanent consequences of taking cross-sex hormones. As soon as they go in and say, I'm a tomboy, I like to do this, and it makes me feel comfortable, they give all the reasons why, and then psychologist Kadra says, oh, you're transgender. And then the next day, you're on hormones? Beck maintains that his previous interview on CNN and his book about being transgender have been used to push transgenderism onto children. They used me so well, you know, I uh, just want to say I'm sorry. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. Beck has asked CNN to have him back on their show for a follow-up interview. We reached out to Beck's former psychiatrist for comment, and we're still waiting for a response. Jason Perry, NCD News. Coming up, a state of emergency declared in Los Angeles over the homelessness crisis. Karen Bass makes her first move after becoming mayor. 
And at the World Cup, excitement over the games is tempered as a pair of on-site journalists suddenly pass away over the weekend. NTD's Dave Martin has the details. That and more coming up. Los Angeles, Mayor Karen Bass declared a state of emergency for homelessness today. This is the first action she's taken since she was sworn into office yesterday. And a job is lost. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass on Monday declared a homelessness emergency in the city. This is one of her first moves as mayor. Bass said, quote, my mandate is to move Los Angeles in a new direction with an urgent and strategic approach to solving one of our city's toughest challenges and creating a brighter future for every Angelino. Bass had focused her campaign on the homelessness crisis and promised to take swift action when she was sworn in on Sunday. According to the Los Angeles Homeless Service Authority, there are almost 70,000 homeless people in L.A. this year. That's 4% higher compared to 2020. The new mayor says her emergency declaration will lead to a unified and citywide strategy and, quote, break new ground to maximize our ability to urgently move people inside. The mayor also emphasized that the city needs to build housing faster and increase efforts to move the homeless into permanent housing. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And now here's a follow-up on the young man who's staging a hunger strike at Apple's headquarters in Cupertino, California. Over the weekend on Human Rights Day, he was not alone. Dozens of supporters joined him in protesting the tech company's airdrop restrictions in China. NTD's David Lamb reports. Although it rained hard, dozens of supporters rallied outside of Apple's headquarters on International Human Rights Day in Cupertino, California, standing with the hunger striker. But Apple, which is a candle of a social responsible company in a lot of the people's eyes, is looting with the Chinese government to spy our own Graduate student Han Wang started a seven-day hunger strike at Apple headquarters on December 5th. He told NTD he's only sleeping underneath this banner. The tent is for storage. They are urging the tech giant to revoke its airdrop restrictions in mainland China, where A4 protesters are counting on the Bluetooth-based tool to evade the communist regime's censorship. One of the activists is also a survivor of the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre in China. In a way, you know, this is a continuation of what we started 33 years ago on Tiananmen Square uh, when we were protesting. But uh, I'm really excited that uh, young people like him are picking up the torch. So we, we see great hope for a free China. For Apple devices, users can set their airdrop retrieval setting to one of three options, receiving off, contacts only, or everyone. With the new changes, those who want to receive files from everyone will have a 10-minute limit, where the phone then reverts back to contacts only. Apple do this and uh, nobody stopped him or nobody, we, we, we didn't come and every technology, technology was saying, uh, big tech company was saying, oh, that's fine, that's fine, because uh, we can have double standard in China and in the U.S. We can claim we are a good company, we are a very good company in the U.S., but we can do some evil things and so nobody really cares. Just after the hunger strike began, 
tech websites Mac Rumors, TechCrunch, and 9to5Mac reported on November 7th that Apple is expanding the 10-minute airdrop limit to all users with iOS 16.2. Apple stated it's an effort to cut down on spam sent in crowded areas and say they originally planned to roll out the feature globally starting in 2023. But Apple has not provided an answer as to why it chose mainland China to be the first country with airdrop restrictions. Entity reached out to Apple for comments. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And now over to sports news. Here's Entity's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. The Purdue Boilermakers are the new number one in college basketball. Matt Painter's team is 10-0 with double-digit wins over national powers Gonzaga and Duke, helping them ascend to the top spot. The team is just one of seven remaining unbeatens and revolves around 7'4", 295-pound center Zach Eady, who leads the NCAA in rebounding and ranks seventh in scoring. And at the World Cup, the semifinals don't start until tomorrow, but clouding the excitement of the weekend's games was the death of a pair of sports journalists. American Grant Wall, who wrote for Sports Illustrated for more than two decades, passed away Friday night while covering the Netherlands-Argentina match. The 48-year-old collapsed at the stadium, and while paramedics administered CPR, he didn't make it to the hospital. Wall had previously posted on his Substack newsletter called Football on December 5th, explaining that he wasn't feeling well and had to go to a medical clinic, saying, quote, what had been a cold over the last 10 days turned into something more severe on the night of the USA-Netherlands game, and I could feel my upper chest take on a new level of pressure and discomfort. Tragically, just hours after Wall's death, photojournalist Khalid Al-Mislam from Qatar was reported to have passed away as well. Details on his death are unclear. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has a seven-game slate featuring the surging Brooklyn Nets, now 14-7 over their new head coach, Jock Vaughn, playing at the Washington Wizards. And in hockey, the NHL has six games planned for tonight, featuring a battle in the New York City area as the New Jersey Devils were second in the league with 43 points playing the Rangers at Madison Square Garden. And finally, for you NFL fans, the New England Patriots play at the Arizona Cardinals on Monday Night Football. And that's all for your sports news. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.